Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Um, so again, we're reading from Supernatural Academy, and as promised, I will be doing a recap of chapters 1 through 19. So much has happened, y'all. I don't even know if I can recap. <laughs> but um, if you haven't listened to chapters 1 through 19, I really suggest you do listen to them. Um, because there's only 26 chapters. We're starting on chapter 20, so we're kind of nearing the end of this book. Um, but we still have 100 pages left to read, so, um, I'm guessing the chapters are going to be kind of long, even though chapter 19 was kind of short, so, we'll see. But, um, recap time, Lord. So... Kaya is the main character of the story. Um, she starts off, she's 14. She is a magical, which is considered like a warlock or a witch or warlock. Um, but they're called magicals in this novel. Um, she doesn't know that she's a magical until after her father is dead. Um, he was killed by hunters and she sees a letter um, that he wrote that explained that, hey, like, you are this completely different person you have this whole world that you're not a part of um so you need to go to this academy so she gets to this academy um this supernatural academy and it's for all supernatural creatures like vampires werewolves sirens mermaids like you name it like they're all there so she lives in the house that's off campus just for the older magicals um and she's learning all this new stuff about her she's learning about her past um she learns that werewolves and magicals hate each other because 20 years ago um some evil magicals called druids started sacrificing and killing werewolves for the blood um and so there's just been like this big huge beef between the two of them and the beef really started um back again because a werewolf died a little kid named max who read who's one of the magicals was actually tutoring um so now the beasts are picking back up the alpha's son zaire is back in town the guy is a bit sociopathic um and he really hates magicals so he's he really doesn't like kaya kaya's kind of weary of him there's a killer on the loose. No one knows who it is. Guy has a skeleton hand, so we'll see how that goes. Um, yeah, there's just there's a lot going on. So the vampires, there's a vampire, Alvaro. He's kind of like losing control a little bit. So we're, I guess we're going to see what really happens with that. Um, that kind of storyline. Because it's mentioned like every now and then we'll hear of Avaro and him losing control. So we'll see how that plays into the main characters. Um, but yeah, so right now where we're at is Anders, who's one of the twins. He is trying to get a vision to see who's going to be killed next by this, you know, creature that's killing people for sacrifices because he wants to be able to catch him to, you know, end all this. So he's trying to get a vision, but Anders doesn't like 
utilizing his powers and he doesn't like really because he gives premonitions he doesn't like it because he doesn't like to see death and the reason for that is he saw his aunt die he told his parents about it and because of their actions trying to prevent her death they actually caused her death and he carries that guilt around with him everywhere he goes so he's terrified that if I see someone else die and I warn them I'm going to be the cause of their death like he doesn't want that kind of pressure. But he's trying to be more adult about it, I guess. And take ownership of his gift and really make it his own. Because he wants to help. He wants to save Kaya. Because Kaya is destined to die. Um, her father, Spirit, who's been coming to Sophie, has warned him about this. Um, Anders has saw it in a dream. Even Chase says, yeah, like, you know, your coven has been getting killed so kaya is on the list of did i so it's kind of a race against time um at this point and that's where we are now we're gonna see is kaya gonna really die who's doing all the killings what's gonna happen with the rest of the magicals oh reed has like this forbidden book so we're gonna see that um so much is gonna happen we have like six seven chapters left so i look forward to seeing how the author actually pulls this off um <laughs> but yeah so i'm gonna get started now on chapter 20 it's called visions and new arrivals um i'm not sure if this one's long or not again i thought chapter 19 was going to be longer but it was like 12 minutes so you know it was real short so we'll see how long this one takes but yeah, I hope you guys are still enjoying. Again, this is Supernatural Academy by Maria Grant. I do have a Facebook page um, that you can check out at your earliest convenience. Um, and the Facebook page is at YA Audio Podcast. So YA Audio Podcast is where you can go to take a look at this um all right but i am about to get back into continuing this right now and again we're on chapter 20 visions and new arrivals anders goes into a trance and fights against his nature to break free he embraces his full gift and everything that comes with it he focuses on the boy in the drawing and finally gets a hit. He can see the boy laughing in a hotel room with friends until he gets a text asking him to meet at a certain location. So the boy does as he's told and he ends up in a abandoned factory before his untimely death. Anna taps in deeper and retraces the steps of the boy until he is back in the hotel room. He hears a deep voice call out Joshua and notice one of the other kids is wearing what appears to be a baseball uniform. Knowing he needs more information, Anders makes the scene freeze. He walks slowly as he takes in the scenery. There are two beds in the room, both a complete mess and filled with scattered clothes and snack bags. There's an office chair with a large body sat in it. There's a massive window and two thin boys are leaning against it while chatting. There's an older man standing up eating a piece of slice next to a tall but fairly young looking man. Then there's the victim who is standing off by himself, leaning against the wall, looking at his phone with a sad expression. He just walks around to see if he can see the message. And to his surprise, on the boy's phone is an article about teens going missing in Dublin and Moscow. 
Even without seeing the text that lured the kid away, he does see the date. It makes him excited because the date reads October 15th. That means there's still time to save him. Anders keeps looking at the phone and his heart plummets. That can't be right. He thinks in shock. The date on his phone is from two years ago. Anders always thought he was getting a vision of what will happen to this kid instead. Anders has been getting a vision of what already happened. With no more hope left, Anders jerks himself out of his trance and lets his frustration out on the carpet. Why? Seems to be the question embedded inside of his brain. How come he got a vision of the past? He has premonitions. That means the things to come. This is something that has never happened to him before. And even though this is an occurrence two years ago in the past, Anders still can't help feel, but he is like a failure. Why is it he can never save a life? He shakes his head away from negative thoughts and blows out the candle. Standing up, he looks at the materials on the floor in disgust before walking out and heading back downstairs. His mood somber. Ray picks up the mood first and starts to bite on his fingernails in an obvious sign of nervousness. Not good, huh? Ray chances asking. Anders huffs his immediate response as he goes to sit on a two-seater couch beside Malcolm. Frustration more like it, Anders grumbles. I was excited at first. I was able to see where the kid started from, how he got led to the murder spot, and even retraced his steps back to the hotel room. He was standing up and froze the scene. Anders smiles a bit. You did really well. Reed congratulates. Proud of you. Sophie reaches over Malcolm to pat Reed on the leg, pat Anders on the leg. Thanks, guys. But this next part is what is so annoying. Anders complains. I saw the time and the date on the kid's phone. And it was for October 15th. That's great. Declan says prematurely. Two years ago. Anders deadpans. Wait. Declan furrows his brow. What? How is that possible? That's the wrong question. Yace leans forward to say. You can tell the gears are whirling around in his head. We should be asking the question. Why is his vision relevant? Malcolm leans back and hums. I see what you mean, Malcolm responds. I'm glad the two of you are having the meeting of the minds, but the rest of us are confused. Declan waves his hand in front of Yates' face. If we think this kid's death has to do with the straws being back, then they haven't just returned, Malcolm explains. It means they've been making moves for at least two years, which is concerning because... Because we don't know how many sacrifices away they are from meeting their thousand goal. Kaya finishes, and a sense of dread comes over her. If they are becoming more public, it might mean they're close. Shit, Declan whispers. They've been making moves in secret. I let my mom know the development. Gate says to Anders, you did good, kid. He admits, thanks. Anders responds, but one more thing, in the vision... The kid was looking up articles about missing teens becoming an epidemic in Dublin and Moscow. Anders states, A few small news blogs have been noticing this trend for years. Malcolm responds, Many think it's underground sex trafficking or organ selling. What if it's more than that? Rethinks out loud. What if they are going missing because they are being sacrificed? 
I hardly see how that's our problem. Anders grows frustrated. I thought we agreed to let the adults handle this. That was before we realized Kaya was right in the middle of it. Declan responds in annoyance. Anders deflates his shoulders and leans back on the couch as he rests his chin on his right fist. You're right. Anders relents. But I still think the adults should default to handling this. We can support them or just be protectors of Kaya, but going up against a fleet of druids with a crazy fallen angel? I'm ill-equipped. He does have a point. Yates agrees and gets pushed by Ree. Don't agree with him, Ree frowns. We can be greater than our own limitations that we've set for ourselves. Druids are no better than this. They, not this again. Yates groans and he places his head in his palms. Ree, let's talk in private. Gates stands and heads for the upstairs balcony and Reed follows suit. You have got to get over this hero complex you're starting to develop. Gates frowns at the teen. Reed shakes his head. Seriously, ever since Kaya came, you've turned into this real overprotective person. Is that so bad? Reed raises his voice a bit. I'm finally feeling comfortable enough in my own skin to realize I can protect someone. That's the first for me, and I get that. Gates reasons, but there's a limit to even you. We aren't superheroes. We're just teenagers trying to make it in this crazy world we call life. We're hardly normal, though, Rita argues. Never said we were, Gates responds. Bigger opportunity means more responsibility. Gates rolls his eyes at Reed. That's about money, not being some teenage vigilante, Gates relents. Reed sighs in frustration. Reed, Reed leans back in his chair and evaluates Yates, really takes in the other teen. Yates' body language leads Reed to believe the teen is masking something. And Reed should know, given the fact that Yates' back is a little too tense compared to the guy's natural laissez-faire nature. Yates, are you? Reed knows he has to tread carefully with Yates. Are you afraid? Of doing more because you don't think your gift is enough? Ye stands and rolls his eyes. But Reed notices the slight twist of the teen's hazel eyes. Reed, drop this vendetta before you do something stupid. Ye states in the same monotone voice. Reed huffs and rests his chin in his fist. Maybe he pushed too hard after all. Once Ye shuts down, it's like bleeding a stone. You'll never get what you want out of him. This whole thing makes Reed wonder, though. Is Zaire left from the same place that's connected to killings now? Then maybe the guy knows who one of the killers is. If so, then maybe Zaire came back to town for more than just Max's funeral. Also, the kid was holding a phone before he got led away from in Anders' vision. Who sent that text? And why would the kid trust them enough to go? Especially considering he was in another country. While Reed continues to think things through, Yates is having a mental crisis just inside the bedroom um, to the balcony. Yates gasps out of breath and sits at the edge of Sophie's bed since her bedroom leads to the balcony upstairs. Yates is always a strong one, the person people confide in. He's convinced himself nothing can touch him because he knows everyone depends on his I don't care attitude to help them cope with their lives. However, Gates has his own insecurities, worries, and problems. He gets scared too and doubts himself. 
He can create any illusion known to man. But how does that help people? It doesn't. He knows he has a strong gas on his powers. But compared to the others, he can't help but feel overshadowed. It's a deep secret. Not even Nekla knows. And yet, Reed was able to peel him apart with just a few deep glances. If Reed was able to figure him out so easily, does that mean Gase's mask is dropping? Or does it mean the others just haven't cared enough to look deeper into who Yates really is? The second option is so bright enough to make Yates rock right out the house while saying a word to anyone. He needs a minute for his thoughts. As Yates walks down the driveway, he hears footsteps behind him. Yates thought he was escaping the others, but looks like Declan wasn't having it. So yet Yates lets Declan join him. Declan and Yates are now at Declan's house after Declan had chased after Yates, who randomly walked away. Yates is sitting in the study, looking out the window, while Declan stares at his friend deeply. He hates this. The gate is obviously going through something. It's too stubborn to just spit it out. Especially since Gates is always a rock for Declan. Talk to me, Declan demands. Gates doesn't even flinch. You came to my house willingly, so you must want to talk. He tries for a different angle. Ugh! He groans and flings his hands wildly, mistakenly flinging a few books off the bookshelf. He stares at what he did and goes to quickly pick up what he may drop when he notices something on the shelf. It's a vial that was hidden behind the books. He goes to pick it up and frowns up his face when he shows it to Yates. What does this look like to you? Declan inquires. Yates raises a curious brow and reaches out his hand to take the vial. He opens up and takes a sniff before pouring the contents in his hand. Willow tree bark, Yates says with conviction. My mom has him at home. She uses it to make healing potions. Didn't Kaya and Sophie mention some ingredients went missing from their chem class? Declan says out loud. Why does my dad have one of the missing ingredients that Druid stole? Yates doesn't have an answer. He just puts the contents back and hands the vial over to Declan. You should put everything back the way you found it and we shall leave, Yates determines. If your father is working with Druids, it means he's back actively hunting again. It also means Druids and hunters are working together. Declan's hands began to shake despite himself. He puts everything back the way he found it and allows Yates to lead him out the house. If his father really is actively hunting again, will Declan be safe this go-around? Or will he have to eventually fight his own father? The one person in this world who scares Declan the most. Declan and Gates leave in a haste, which is right on time considering Mr. Patel comes home an hour later. Mr. Patel places his briefcase at the door and sits in his luxury leather recliner chair on the den, he leans back in his chair and closes his eyes as he senses a person enter the room. Standing in the entryway is his wife of 25 years. She has a grim look on her face and he knows she's disapproving of something. Susan Poole just called me concerned, she leaves with. Says her husband Bobby is leaving on a week-long trip with his hunting group. She stops talking as he wipes a hand down his face. 
How does that apply to me? Mr. Patel answers questions there. You're hunting again? She sneers. We agreed when we found out Declan was a magical, you would stop hunting. So why are the twins' father going hunting again? That was before he got his little black friend to jump me, Mr. Patel stands up to shout. He can feel how hot his face is with anger. And he knows his face is probably beat red right now. Yates hit you because you tried to hit Declan. She yells right back. Did you know? That the magical trait is passed down by blood. He lowers his eyes and lifts up a lip, a lip and a snarl. You trying to say my bloodline is tainted? The idea has certainly crossed his mind time and time again. Every time he thinks about it, it angers him even more. But for his wife to bring it up? Unheard of. No, not yours, but mine is. She lifts her head up defiantly, but Mr. Patel can see her shaking a little bit. I fell in love with you before I knew you were a hunter. I thought I could overlook it because you stopped actively hunting and then stopped altogether once Declan presented. But I can't overlook you abusing our son or killing his kind. My kind. You what? He stumbles back in his chair as a look of hurt, anger, confusion crosses his face. He doesn't know how to comprehend this news. The love of his life is a magical. She's a creature he was raised to hate, raised to believe as a product of the devil. His mother was right all along. The devil really does deceive you. He should have known. He should have known his bloodline was pure. Declan is a product of this woman's sin. My gift is levitation, like Declan's, she explains. I've learned how to hide it so I can blend in with everyone else. I really do love you, Jonathan, but I can't let your blind hatred hurt our son. She looks him in the eyes and doesn't back down. This woman is fierce. One of the reasons why Mr. Patel loves her so much. But this revelation isn't something he can just ignore. He has to leave with his hunting group tonight. They are meeting with some more druids who are going to help them track down a young group of kitsunes so the group can steal their tails for luck. Now he has his heavy weight on his heart and no idea what to do about it. Does he overlook his wife's confession? Does he divorce her? Does he kill her? Can they go back to normal? He has no idea. His perfect world is slowly crumbling before him and he needs to get a good grasp before he falls. Then again... If he can be okay with using druids to get what he wants, then he should be able to look his own wife, right? Druids are scum, and they can't be trusted. So abusing their willingness to go against their kindness, convenient, but loving his magical wife isn't as easy to stomach. Leave. He wants to tell her so desperately, but his voice doesn't seem to be working at the morning moment. Get out, and don't come back. His mind yells from behind silent lips. He feels numb. So numb, in fact, he does nothing at all. She shakes her head and walks away, heels cackling on the hardwooden floor. What now? He says for the first time in his life because for once he has no idea what to do. Mrs. Patel leaves her shocked husband in the den and gets in her car to see her son. Her hands are shaking and her eyeliner is smearing her cheeks as tears cascade down her face. She loves her husband truly, despite his flaws. 
He's been kind to her, treasures her, supports her, and acts as a best friend to her. She's seen a side of him no one else has. For example, when he placed plastic all over the house and they had a water fight for no reason at all. She's seen him take painting classes so he could paint her a portrait. She's seen him climb a tree to rescue what he thought was a cat but turned out to be a plastic bag. That's who he is. And that's who she fell in love with, not the killer or the hunter. Yet still, she threw it all away for her son, her precious life form, whom she would die for. She's kept this huge secret all this time and she hopes it's not too late for her to reveal her true nature. She hopes the damage hasn't been non-reversible. A sob comes spilling out of her mouth and she tries to drown her own tears out with the sound of music from the radio. It's not helping, but it's something. Anything but silence. She needs a distraction as she dries. The drive feels like forever, even though it's only 15 minutes. She puts the car and park behind Yates' Jeep and sits for a few minutes before reaching in her purse for a tissue. She wipes away the evidence and flashes on the fake smile she's had to use the majority of her life. Appearances are everything, dear. Her mother's voice taunts her mind. She raps on the door twice. She takes a step back and waits for the door to open. It's Malcolm. His dark hair is matted to his forehead as he's just gotten out of the shower. He moves from the entryway and allows her to step in. Hey, Mrs. Patel. He greets with a hug. She knows he can read minds. But her thoughts are going to mount one minute and she can't even control what she's thinking. She hopes she keeps whatever he heard to himself. I will. He places the thought in her mind, and she gives him a tight smile. Where's Declan? Her voice acts in a quivery voice. He and uh, Gates just came back from your house like an hour ago, Malcolm answers, so now they're in the basement, eating. She sighs internally. Already grateful Declan wasn't there when her husband arrived at the house. Thank you. She states and clicks her heels down to the basement. She steadies her hand briefly before opening the door and heads down. The boys must hear her because they both get up and are at the bottom of the stairs before she reaches the end of the floor. Hey, Mom. Declan greets with excitement in his tone, but also confusement. What are you doing here? Did I miss something? He tilts his head to the side like a dog. You want some food? We picked up Ty. I'm not hungry, but thank you, she says in kind. She gestures to the set of crescent-shaped houses. I need to speak to you. She looks him in the eye to say, I should leave, Gates suggests, but she stops him. Please stay, she pleads. He's going to need you to keep him calm. Declan is already growing antsy at hearing this phrase. A thousand possibilities swarming his mind, and it makes him itchy. Like something is under his skin and he can't get rid of it. What's going on? Declan questions as he sits. I've lied to you all these years, she says slowly. Declan's too confused to even interrupt her with a question, so she barrels on. I'm a magical. My gift is the same as yours, but I've hidden it since a child, so I never really thought of myself as a magical before. She sees Declan freeze up, and Gaze grabs the teen's hand tightly. The reason you're a magical is because of me. 
Because of my bloodline, she explains, my father was a magical as well before he died. He could control fire. His great aunt was a magical too and she could speak to the dead. Got so powerful she could even raise corpses. She babbles on. So magicals have been all throughout my family and I saw the toll it took on them and I didn't want that for me. For you. You, you, Darkland's daughters, you knew what dad did on the side and you still married him? You gave birth to me knowing his hatred for magicals and you didn't protect me? You never told me you understood what I was going through because you went through it till you just shipped me off to this school so you could play perfect family with your murderer husband. He shouts and stands. Gay stands as well and wraps his arms around his shaking friend. I, she doesn't know what to say. I was with him before I knew he was a hunter. I fell in love with him and overlooked his past. When you presented, he stopped hunting. I, I hate you. Declan shouts with conviction. The basement begins to shake and things begin to rattle like an earthquake. I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. He says like a mantra. He falls to his knees, gates with him, and clings to his friend like a lifeline. She doesn't know what to do. Or say so she stands and tries to wipe away some of her tears. Her little boy is distraught and it's all her fault. I love you, son. She whispers for walking upstairs. Heading to the front door, she sees Sophie, Kaya, Malcolm, and Twin standing in the living room with white eyes. She blinks away some fallen tears and walks out the door to her car. She doesn't know how long it takes. She doesn't care how long it takes. She will fix things with her son. Even if it's the last thing that she does. Mrs. Patel arrives back at the house to see her husband drinking bourbon on the rocks out of a crystal glass. He's at the table, looking off into the distance. She takes her shoes off and goes to sit in front of him. Where does this leave us? She questions bluntly. I'm leaving for my hunting trip. He swallows the last bit of, of his drink and slams a glass, glass on the table before he stands. We'll talk when I get back. He begins to walk away from her. If you walk out that door and kill a magical, then don't expect me to be here when you return. His back freezes at these words, but they aren't enough to make him turn around. He keeps walking and heads out the door. Mrs. Patel doesn't shed a tear. Not for her husband. Instead, she picks up her phone and calls Yamada. She could really use her friend right now to help her be strong because she refuses to sleep with the enemy anymore. She has to stand firm for her son.